I feel like Slee Ricketts without me in the mix is going, uh, it's like turning into a poetry podcast. And I don't, <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the danger. I don't know how I feel about that. A whole, could you imagine a whole, po a whole podcast dedicated to poetry? What, what kind of drag? Who would, why would you? <laughs> Smith and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. And thanks especially to all of you who've taken a moment sometime recently to recommend the show to a friend. That is the way in which people learn that this is a show at all. Thank you also uh, especially to all of you secret show subscribers. You've uh, been lively on the Substack chat. Uh, if you've not, if you are a subscriber and you've not yet joined, then please uh, do go check out the Substack chat or just uh, jump in and argue about why Christian rock sucks and, uh, or just lurk. Uh, all are, all are welcome. If you have not checked out the secret show yet, then go to sleevericketts.substack.com, put in your email address and I will get you a free week's trial. So you can hear what's up there and see what you think. I think, I think you will, I think you'll like it. I think it's, I think it is good. That's the goal. My goal is to do, uh, there's a line in a, uh, a Rebecca Lee story about a friend's novel in which she says like, oh, she, she just left in all the good parts and took out all the bad parts. And that's my goal. I want it, I want to just do the good parts. So with that in mind, I have for you this week, a pair of, I think, fun, sort of strange, strangely balanced conversations. Uh, one about an essay that, so I'm talking with Brian, Brian's back. We talk first about an essay that I think we, we, we like, but disagree with it while thinking that everything in it is correct. And then a story that we love despite thinking that everything in it is wrong. Uh, but both both interesting, both definitely worth some thought. Uh, the article is called Has Academia Ruined Literary Criticism? This is this is an, an essay that came out in the New Yorker. It's by Merv Emery, who was the the lead professor for uh, none other than Cameron in his first year at Oxford uh, as a, apparently a great professor and really smart uh, essayist. She, like, I think we we find some things to, to quarrel with, but, uh, and have to make fun of it a little bit because what else would we be doing? What, what's the point of having a podcast if you can't make fun of people who are more successful than you? But I... You know, I would. I know Merv Emery has listened to the show a little bit in the past. I would love to hear from her what we get wrong, and uh, and of course, I I'm planning to talk with Cameron uh, coming up in a couple weeks again, and and uh, I know he will uh, he will have plenty uh, to chime in with uh, as well. But the, first, there's that, and then second is a conversation about uh, it's a, a a a listener request, which is a a uh, discussion of a short story by Thomas Ligotti. Really fucking weird short story, but totally fascinating. And I'm very glad that, uh, very glad I read it. 
I hope you enjoy all of that. And I, I should have a Secret Show episode coming out soon. I've, I've had so much really lovely correspondence from a lot of people. I, I, I am planning to respond to it. I will probably just dedicate a Secret Show episode to that. And maybe I'll throw in a couple of... Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good 10-minute riff of... Just Brian ranting about why lectures are bad. So maybe I'll maybe I'll stick that in the secret show episode. But right now, let's get to Merv Emery and the trouble with academia. Um, are we gonna so we're gonna talk about this the short story and the <laughs> essay, correct? Yes. Uh, Which I am um, rather ambivalent about both of them, I think, in an interesting way. Um, yes. I'm excited to discuss them both. They have, I think, nothing to do with each other. Or are we going to somehow try to tie they, them together? One is about, one is literature and one is about literary <laughs> criticism. And so in that sense, they are, they are connected. One is fiction and the other one is written by someone who lectures on fiction. Reads fiction. Yeah. Reads fiction. Oh, that's what you do as a student. You read fiction at at, uh, at Oxford, and then as a you, non, she's a she's not a don, but she's a she's a he was a, like Cameron's personal person, like person. His first is name. that true? Yeah, that's so funny. Uh, for whatever that means, but yeah. But I guess it's not such a coincidence because, like, that's why we're reading an essay by this person. That's why her name leapt out of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't be right. So it's not like can you believe that this is this person is lecturing. Because like we oh, wouldn't yeah, yeah, yeah. we wouldn't be discussing this this essay otherwise. Well, I mean, I subscribed to the New Yorker, so if I'd seen the headline yeah. has academia ruined literary criticism, <laughs> I might have might have picked it up either way. On on Twitter, I don't know if you bothered looking, but no. her only interaction about this piece on Twitter is decrying the title and saying, "Why can't we write our own headlines?" And that's not what I would call it, and it's so terrible. The headline that's the only that's the only online discourse about this piece, which which is in an odd way of a piece with some of the other stuff in the essay that like I found both charming and frustrating. And it also felt like, like she's a, she's like a young hip like professor or whatever you call them at Oxford. But she also seems like almost intergenerationally out of touch with like the way people in America talk about some of this stuff. And that she's like, Hey, you know, I heard this funny thing from Avenue Q. I'm like, wow. I know. Like, I know. And then, the way and she's she like, you know, who's really funny on this is Nietzsche. And like, it's, I, it's not that she's wrong about any of it. It's just, it's like, oh, this is like, she's really, it's not the no. way somebody who's an American would write about any of this stuff. Well, it's, it's not the way someone, what, what I like think the, the, the crack about queering things, which I also like, it's, it's not, it's not unfunny, but it's also like, it, it's definitely not an American take. Yeah. I don't know. Right. It's, it seemed like if you told me this, this was written by an elderly British man. I would have completely believed yeah. that, and, or like and found an old some of white it. Southern man, or yeah, right, right. I also I had the sense that she was like inside a shoe closet, lecturing at the door about how like the shoes aren't as important as people think they are, or something. Like I don't, I I got very confused as to who thinks the things that she's dispelling in this piece, and and I want to talk about it because yeah. I I don't everything that she is like criticizing i don't know anyone who believes what she's criticizing right. but it doesn't seem to me like she's criticizing straw men it seems like in her world people do yeah. believe these things yeah and i, and I have a, yeah it, it also like it, it gave me like the things that frustrated me about it made me want to question you in particular about it but let's like generally speaking so this is 
it's it's an essay that should not have been titled has academia ruined literary criticism though that doesn't seem honestly that doesn't seem unfair given no given the, the title that, that how do you pronounce her name merv emray emray i don't em know emray i don't know merv emory um, or you know, whatever emory uh so the title that she liked according to her tweets was uh everyone's a critic these days or everyone's a critic or something like that which, which also which also really seems like both of those seem equally accurate titles uh for this piece which is sort of written in response to two books by john guillory one is professing criticism which is his new book and one is cultural capital which is his old book in which she she seems to like much better than the new and book. which she wrote the introduction for right it, it also has this strange book review I, I don't know what the what the metaphor is this this sort of conceit behind a book review that you're sort of reviewing a book you're sort of giving your own idea as in a literary essay, but the bulk of it, she is summarizing his argument. And to me, it's yeah. difficult to understand whether she agrees with his argument or not in the summary. It seems like she's having, she's purposefully ambiguous when it comes to whether she aligns her views with that of what she's summarizing. Yes. And that's partly what I wanted to ask you about because, and I, I think I was very sympathetic to most of this essay. I did, I didn't have time, but like, it did make me want to reread what is minor poetry. Cause I was like, does Elliot say minor poets are superior to major ones? I don't think he says that, but maybe, I mean, I need to reread it, but like I, whether or not she's arguing with straw men, I certainly, I had, maybe I had like the Parle Siegel feeling of being like, yeah, I feel sympathetic to a lot of this, uh, this criticism at least. And you're right that she seems initially just to be kind of conveying the criticism of at least cultural capital and then partly the new book as well. Uh, here she quotes from Guillory, this is a world in which some of us can specialize in the study of cultural artifacts and within this category to specialize in literary artifacts and, and within literature to specialize in English and within English to specialize in romanticism and within this period to specialize in eco-criticism of romantic poetry. Guillory writes, the cost of this professional autonomy is influence. How far beyond the classroom or beyond the professional society of the teachers and scholars does this effort reach? He asks, knowing that the answer is not far at all. And, and that is where, like, I think in, in fairness to, to her and to him, whether or not anybody, whether or not like she's arguing with a straw man, she's still like, this is still a description of the state of things. Absolutely. And I think a very... Uh clean one you know yeah. i i think this guillory guy is is absolutely right is it a guy i assume it's a guy i don't know why i, I assume john, it's a guy. john guillory yeah. john yeah so i think i think guillory is right in talking about the absurd specialization of mm -hmm. college professors but everyone knows that right so yes. i'm i'm a little bit confused as to what the larger point is that like even those uh, of our listeners who went to college you know 50 years ago um all the way through those of of them who are currently in college they know that their literature professors right. are hyper specialized and they know that their literature professors have no contemporary cultural influence right i don't think anybody's pretending that that either one of those two things might not be the case so that's where i get confused by this piece i i think that it's a it does a, a really good job of discussing the irrelevance of professors, yeah. but who is arguing the other side of that? Who is lamenting that? Who is, what is this in reaction to? That's what I got a little bit confused by. 
Well, and what I think like is a meaningful, and it is sort of, it sounds like the the central point of his earlier book, which seems to be the one she really likes here. This is, this is from her earlier. She says to be, and this is like, I just found this to be such a both like accurate and depressing sentence to be the kind of person who could translate the Iliad in 1880 or do a close reading of a poem in 1950 or queerer work in 2010 was to be manifestly the product of a university and to reap economic and social rewards because of it. Uh, whether one spoke of the Western canon, the feminist canon, or the African-American canon, the idea of a literary canon was a form of cultural capital. So I, I think like the, 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 his point and her point seemed to be that, that whether or not anybody thinks English professors have cultural influence or whether or not anybody thinks that they're not a joke by studying such bizarrely, you know, invented and narrow slices of fields, the the work they are still sweatily doing is not actually a work of, it's not actually critical work. It's the work of cultivating cultural capital. It's the work of, of like maintaining a, a, you know, a significant if crumbling social status. Right. And it's the coin of an ever shrinking realm, right? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that they are, there are these people who dedicate their lives to obscure aspects of obscure texts and are rewarded for that um, that work. And then even worse, she mentions, there are the people reading this essay who have dedicated their lives to obscure aspects of obscure texts and are not rewarded with professorships. Right. <laughs> and that's even worse, you know? And I, I think that that is more or less true. And it's why um, I was told by, so there's a, a professor at, at Columbia who was my my thesis advisor. His name is James Shapiro. He's one of America's great Shakespeare scholars. Um, and he writes uh, or frequently wrote book reviews for the New York Times. And he and I were chatting about what I should do with my life. And I said, I was considering getting a doctorate. And he, he essentially said, like, do you want to be read um, by the world or does something excite you about living a life within the confines of a university and having your office in your classroom? And I said, no, I, I'd like to be a, a person in the world. And then he said, well, then of course you shouldn't go get a doctorate. You should try to find another way to, to write or, for popular audiences. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. And I, and, and to me, that was really great if somewhat curmudgeonly advice. And I, I followed it. I, I don't yeah. think I have the analytical mind to become a great professor. I definitely was a hard enough worker to have gotten the doctorate and then hoped. But I, I think that everybody knows, not maybe, maybe not everybody. I think that it is, I assume the majority of our listeners know that to go get a doctorate in English literature is to fight both the political battles of the university and the intellectual battles of increasingly obscure uh areas of, of focus and I, I i think that that is um best summed up in in what i think is the the heart of of this piece tell me if you agree or not but she discusses it as a tale of two crises mm -hmm. one the economically driven crisis of the humanities and then what this guy she's quoting gilroy uh, calls the crisis of legitimate legitimation among the professoriate. And none of these are particularly new ideas. The, the crisis of humanity is, is that people are told that they're not going to get a job if they major in English. So decreasing numbers of people are majoring in English. I actually don't know whether that's historically accurate and whether that has as much to do with 
gender roles or what it means to be in the aristocracy or just like groups of people who used to study English no longer do because they need to go get jobs. I, I, I don't know enough about that and I don't feel like she does either, but she, she discusses it as one crisis is the crisis of the humanities and the second crisis is the crisis of legitimation. For some reason, a word I keep on struggling with among the professoriate, which is what we were discussing earlier. But then she cites, it's not clear that even the most robust justification for literary study, which, which she lists Gilroy's uh, defense of later on, but I think you and I would say something like humanity and language are associated and delving deep into other people's masterworks, trying to articulate our own language about them and therefore the world is a what life well lived or something and those skills might be able to extend to other jobs and it's just sort of a good use of your time to spend four years studying English, maybe, like that would be my response to what the a, point of a more cynical take but yeah i mean okay I, yeah i think both of us would still be more cynical than john gilry who gives a strangely comprehensive account of all the things right and enumerated all, all the reasons why yeah. one might too but then the author of this essay uh emery says it's not clear that even the most robust justifications of literary study would be effective in the face of the overwhelming socioeconomic pressures. So that's what we talked about. The rise of new media. I don't know what that means, but I does that mean websites and social media? Because if so, why would websites and social media make English and humanities courses less appealing? And the decline of prose fiction as a genre of entertainment, I also don't know if that's true. I, I don't know if, right. if you have more Americans today reading prose fiction than 50 years ago. I just, I just don't know the answer to that. And yeah, they're, they're yeah. thrown in as, as givens, whatever the case may be, she continues. The hard truth is that no reader needs literary work interpreter for her. Certainly not in the professionalized language of the literary scholar. Again, this has always been the case. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm a little bit confused as to what the argument is. Soon, Gilroy writes, the knowledge and pleasures transmitted by literary criticism in the university may become a luxury that can no longer be afforded. It has always been a luxury. The, the question yeah. is whether it can be afforded or not, but that has right. to do with institutional funding, I think, more than you know, how it benefits humanity in the way that she seems to say it is. And then she finishes the paragraph, What when the future bears down on us and borrowing a miracle or a revolution, it's a matter of when, not if, how will we justify the practice of criticism? And I just don't, I've never met anybody who is justifying the practice of criticism in the way that she seems to think that we are all doing now. So again, my take from this piece is that I agree with nearly everything she's saying, except in the premise, which is that there is a crisis or that it used to be one way and now it's another way. Maybe it used to be this way when Virginia Woolf was writing, but then she quotes Virginia Woolf saying, now everybody sucks. When criticism was really good, it was a hundred years before that. So we're going back a hundred years, citing someone who's going back another hundred years saying when criticism was was valuable. And I'm, I'm confused by this premise. I, I don't quite get it because yeah. I am 20 years out of university and everybody then knew that right. literary criticism was absurd and yeah. people still know it now. And I mean, it was absurd in a different way, perhaps. I mean, w when I was at Columbia, I, I took classes with some of these people who seem to be now discussed as like the most absurd um, members of like new criticism and you know, uh, deconstruction and stuff that we yeah. we roll our eyes at now. But I, I took classes with Edward Said and with uh, uh, Gaiety, I think I believe was her first name, Spivak, who are these like core figures in um, 
what this essay is criticizing. And like everyone was looking around then saying like, right. why are these essays so hard to read? Like, wh why are they written like this? Like n Orientalism by right. Said was the exception that proves the rule. Like it, it right. was it was the one example of a literary critic who was able to fundamentally change our vision of society. And that was so exciting. And that book, I think, still holds up spectacularly. But it wasn't like there were a million of these books. It was there was Orientalism and then maybe one or two others and a whole bunch of academics trying to accomplish something similar using vocabulary that was very difficult to parse within sentence structures that was either agrammatical or at very least ungenerous to, to its readers. So I am... I am interested in what is pressing now about this, because, again, everything she says, I think, is true. And I don't know who is arguing the counter. Yes, and, and I, I, I'm with you there. And I do imagine that the occasion was John Gilry has this new book, which she oh, I'm not. Of, yeah. I'm not criticizing her delving into a new book, nor am yeah, I criticizing yeah, yeah. John Delvery writing it. I'm just sort of interested in, is there a world outside of academia that is fighting for the validity of academia-based criticism, you know, or or criticism in general? The language gets a little sloppy with her use of professoriats and critics yeah, yeah. and criticism. And I, I think that there's probably, she she where she really surprises me is at the end where she's like, well, someday we're going to be in a world where you know, a, a comment on Goodreads will have the same value as an essay on N plus one, which have the same value as a published text by a, a Yale professor. And I, that that to me is a gatekeeper issue. It's like, yes, right now there are super sophisticated, intelligent people writing on Goodreads, but mostly it's a bunch of trash. And I don't yeah. know what we're, how that world would be useful. Like, I think it exists now. We're in that world where some of the smartest people in the world are professors at Harvard and Cambridge and some of the smartest people in the world are writing for N plus one and the believer and some of the smartest people in the world are writing on Goodreads. I don't know why that would be valuable societally or what we're supposed to make of, of that. But again, I don't know anybody other than professors. And I know a decreasing number of professors who would hold the view that like, but really this sort of sophisticated, useful criticism belongs at Cambridge and Harvard. I just don't, I don't know anybody who feels that way. Yeah. I, maybe it's her reference to Nietzsche. makes me think of his parable of the madman. Like part of the joke, of course, like the, what the line that's famous from that little bit is he says, God is dead. But like the, the sort of the joke of it is he tells this crowd of people, Hey, God is dead. And they're described as being like a cosmopolitan crowd. Like they're, they're like educated worldly people. And he tells them this and their response is to laugh. And, and then, and then his response is, oh, I've come too soon. Like their, their response is not, uh, oh, this is terrible news. It's like, yeah, who cares? And, and the way he reads that is like, oh, you think, you know, this, but you actually haven't digested it yet. Like the echoes are still reverberating and I need to come back later when it's hit you what this means. That's really I, interesting. How connect that for me to so, this. So here, this sentence, um, on my page 14, she says, today in academe, one looks around. I never know that word academe, which now like well, she used to say academia, she, and now we say academe. But but she uses both um, yeah, in this true. piece. And I'm and not I, I, I'm sure she meanings? does so purposefully because the, yeah. the line editors at the New Yorker are the best in the world. Say, so I yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a reason why she uses it one right. one way, I another another way. Yeah. Neither do I.
Um, today in academia, one looks around with dismay at what a century of professionalization has wrought. The mastery, yes, but also the bureaucratic pettiness, the clumsily concealed resentment, the quickness to take offense, and the piety, oh, the piety. And I think that's where I, I do, I wonder if like part, in part, there is probably some cultural difference between these conversations in America and the conversations in the UK, both in that there probably is still a little bit more of a, like an artistic culture and a culture of art appreciation there. And there also is certainly more, you know, pu public funding and institutions have it, you know, respected in a different way. But I think also in that there, there is, I think we are much quicker to speak cynically here, but I think we're much slower to digest that cynicism. Oh, that's smart. And that's interesting. And that, that does, I think, it become a useful parallel to the Nietzsche that, that you just said. What, what I was thinking of the piety or the piety is I, mm -hmm. I believe that piety exists in academia, academe, as I like to say, uh, mm -hmm. both in Oxford, Cambridge and in Harvard, Yale, you know, which are the schools that she cites. But I have never been to a more pious place than the one party I attended uh, thrown by N plus one and another party I attended yeah, thrown yeah, by the yeah. New York Review of Books. Like the, the piety there certainly rivaled, if not exceeded the piety of Columbia, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, totally, yeah. you know? So I, I don't, I think anybody, I, the piety of, of Sleerick, it's like I, we, we have a sort of ironic piety because yeah, our, yeah, yeah. The, the purpose of, of yeah. at least my episodes on this show is to like roll my eyes at everybody's piety yeah, when, yeah. when they come on discussing poetry with, with, sincerity but but i i think that the poets talking about poetry and literary essayists talking about literary essays whether at a university or in the back room of an office that they've rented are the most pious people in in the world and i i i think it's fun to laugh at that but i also think like people who've dedicated their lives to studying literature like better be pretty serious about literature like it yeah 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 it, it makes it makes sense for these places to be pious because like these are to continue the uh, the, the analogy of the use of the word piety like p piety these are the grand cathedrals of literature right w whether it's the english department of cambridge or the back office of the uh, new york review of books like if, if these places aren't pious who will be one of the funny things about especially like an, an academic social or cultural environment is that is that everybody can laugh the same smirking laugh thinking that that they're the rebels right like yeah like all I, like the people who were right. the most pious would also express all the sentiments that she expresses here they just would be thinking they're expressing about someone else and a target that she brings up that that is i think it's gillery's framing is the the scholar activist is that what she calls it yes it is um, uh, and that was th that, but that's the big transition that she refers to from when people stop taking the text as text. The tenure and start... radical, yeah, right. which is which is the new criterion guy's term. Yeah, the scholar activist. Uh, for her, the, for the scholar activist, the proper task of criticism was to participate in social transformations occurring outside the university. The battle against exploitation, she claimed, could be waged by writing about racism, sexism, homophobia, and colonialism using uh, an increasingly refined language of historical context, identity, and power. And I think that is something that like the new criterion loves to be snotty about. But I also think that that's a, that like in the list of academic types that people might, that like lots of academics might chortle at, that's one where if you included that in the list, that would be the moment when a lot of people would stop laughing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also think that it is um, th that type of, what's the term, an academic activist? Is that what so she, she is? Calls a, scholar not me. Yeah. a scholar activist, yeah. A scholar activist. 
that to me, I am most ambivalent about because I, I feel like a scholar activist is absurd in the way yep. that you ask all your poets, like in the essay, in the, uh, in the wonderful episode you just put out. And I, I use wonderful with all seriousness, actually. I really, it, really like it. Can you possibly um, have listened to it? <laughs> no, I did. I did right oh, before. Wow, I listened amazed. to it on uh, one and a half speed to get through it. Well, <laughs> but right before, uh, right before we recorded, um, you ask the question that you always ask, which is like, we're all against war, but why is war the way that we're going to, I mean, why is poetry the way that we're going to try to talk about how war is bad? Yeah. And his response is like, well, I like poetry and I'm against right. war. So like, go fuck <laughs> yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do you, sure. what do you want me to do about this? Um, I am incredibly ambivalent about the idea of the scholar activist because I think it's like, come on scholar, like you're not an yeah, activist, yeah. but on the other hand, it's like, I don't know. Like if we're really pushing towards acceptance of you know, LGBTQ people in society, which is something I believe strongly we should be doing. And one is a scholar. Like if you can read old or relatively new texts with an eye towards reframing them in such a way. So LGBTQ people are um, not denigrated or if they're denigrated, we understand the manner in which they're being denigrated. Like that sounds as useful as anything else you can be doing with your time. Like I, I, I think that there's something incredibly blinkered about all of this. Do you um, say that as someone who would want to sit in on that lecture or no, of who, course would, who not. would not want to sit on an, any lectures? No, right? exactly. That, I like, hate lectures. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a better yeah. question is, is um, would I want to read that person's book, right. you know, analyzing it? Because lectures I mean, are awful. I don't yeah, get, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, get yeah. the purpose of lectures. Um, would but, you want to read any of those books? Right. And the answer is no, I don't, yeah. I don't read long form criticism of <laughs> fiction you know like i don't that yeah. that that's it's so boring you would listen to that podcast at two and a half speed right? no like i would <laughs> no i would listen to a podcast discussing that right as like if somebody wants to summarize that really quickly like i don't because <laughs> i i am interested if somebody's yeah, like yeah, yeah. hey this novel you read one thing you maybe didn't can think about it is the way that fundamental to the reading of the novel is the acceptance of gay people as weak i could say like oh Maybe I did fall into that trap. I'm I'm happy somebody pointed that out to me. I have no interest in being there for two hours while somebody, you know, uh, lectures on all the different examples and the flaws and how it compares right. to other like that. Sure. That that's just not the way I want to spend my time. But as a as a use of somebody's um, academic platform, that sounds fine. So what's the point of this essay? So here here's a question I had because I did, you know, even when it felt at times like this was something that might have been published in the New Yorker 10 years ago, or, you know, 30 years ago, in some cases, I, you know, I thought she said basically true things for the most part throughout, I found it gratifying, even when I didn't, even when it didn't seem like it was, it was especially new, or even when I was just sort of being gratified in my pettiness and part like thought like, well, part of the reason they're publishing this is because, because assholes like me click on it. Right. But, um, but then the thing I was confused about is as she got to the end, this is maybe what partly made me want to ask you because you're better with normal social cues and normal social interactions than I am. She, the way she starts talking makes me think like, I don't know, like, so part of what you get frustrated by in essays like Carl Siegel's are like, she's making this forceful case and the argument has this sort of flimsy foundation. And couldn't she just describe this stuff and then let us just have it. And it seems to me that Merv Emery is mostly doing that in a way that then I start to wonder like, well, wait a minute, I almost would rather you just make your strong case and then I can decide to take it or leave it. But there are these passages where she says things and I think like, I don't know what her tone is. Like, I don't actually know what she's, she says here. 
She quotes Guillory saying, our discipline is or should be committed to developing the capacity to judge among readers of literature. It has been too easy for the discipline to relegate judgment to the unspoken or even to disparage it as just a ruse of ideology. He writes, more than ever, the uncertainty of aesthetic pleasure in literature calls for a sophisticated theory of cultural transmission in all of its sites, but above all in the classroom where all the ladders of the discipline find their start. And then Merv Emery concludes that paragraph saying, by the time we get to the fifth and final rationale, epistemic slash disciplinary, one wants badly to climb down the ladder. And I think what Th that I think was disparaging, like, a, I think like that was jokey, just like, like a jokey dismissal line. But like, but how, like on, based on what, like based on the fact that he's, he's just like droning on or based on like, it's too long. It's. I, I had a question as to, about that as well, which is why is that the one that makes her want to climb down the ladder as opposed right. to like the four similarly sincere reasons why criticism could right. be valuable? I didn't I didn't get that. I think that part of what you're asking is answered in the paragraph um, after the piety or the piety one, where one suspects that Gilroy is not delighted by the state of his profession. And I think by implication, neither is Emery. But he is careful, she writes, to avoid hand-wringing or boisterous calls to action. Open paren, he would likely see such a criticure as a symptom of the illness rather than a viable prescription. And in, in that way, she seems to be saying that anybody with a strong opinion about how to fix any of this yeah. is just a um, a victim of it. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, so so there 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 are, though, these like... Like she describes to me a condition that I find, you know, sadly like not new, but definitely infuriating. But then her account of all of the different responses to it is weirdly double-edged or like cagey. Where like there's several moments where she'll say things like, somebody of this description might find this stirring or somebody like an unemployed scholar might be vindicated by this passage but then the way she frames it you think like wait should he not be is the, would that be foolish and then she goes on later to say like when he's praising in plus one and i do like i wanted to coin like like your little little rant made me think of like like we need like platzer's law which is like a, a subculture can only be refreshingly unpretentious when viewed from the outside but like, right. he <laughs> has this claim where he says such sites as in plus one and whatever disclose the widespread desire for an engagement with literature and culture that is more serious than the habits of mass consumption and that demands new genres and forms of discourse. And then she says, he does not develop the point further, yet one suspects, given what such magazines and blogs can afford to pay, that any prospective contributor will have to have hold a job or several. Here one catches a sudden glimpse of a future in which the scholar-critic kaleidoscopes into many hyphenated identities, the critic copy editor, the critic community organizer, the critic assistant, the critic Amazon warehouse associate slash Uber driver. I leave to one side the critic of independent means and the critic who married into money. And I think like, who's she making fun of? Like, is she making fun totally. of him? Is she making fun of yeah. all of them? Why are you I, leaving I those people to the side? What like, Also, the, also, we not have what, why one? is this should a we... sudden glimpse into the future? That's the part that confused me about this. Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely the, present. the present. That's like the that's recent the past. Present. And, the, yeah. and this is where she shows how out of touch with the, what she's writing about is, where it's She's like, I could imagine one day where someone would need to write critical essays and work at an Amazon warehouse. Like, what I have a good happening? friend who does that. Yes. You know, like, like I, I, I he's that's gotta really. Be a, that's got to be a UK thing. 
he's really frustrated because he has to work the night shift at the Amazon warehouse, you know, and what he wants to do is publish more critical essays, you know, like that's not this fanciful possibility. Um, And then I read read an essay in 2010 by Durst Grubein, who's a German poet in which he said like, you know, it's tough being a poet because some people on the street, they don't even think I deserve my poet's pension. (laughs) Exactly. I know the Germans are great with that. I mean, when she does talk about maybe we'll find the answer to this in countries other than the United States or the UK, it's just Germany and a little bit France, you know, like I like maybe the Nordic countries, but like Germany still pays for small opera companies from around the world to come and play like not even the big cities, but like in Hamburg. One of the Scandinavian countries that has like, like really well-funded TV and drama stuff. And yeah, but yeah, you're for, right. It's for like, sure. It's two um, and a half countries. You know? But then she also introduces us to the idea, it's not unusual to stumble upon an essay on Goodreads or Substack that is just as perceptive as academic or journalistic. Like, mm-hmm. of course not. Like right. some of the most sophisticated thinkers in the world are writing on Substack for their niche audiences in right. the most advanced way. Like that's, we, that, that's yes. what is hurting the Atlantic because right. their writers are on Substack now, like we right. we yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. So that's yes. th- that's where I get very confused as to. It's like when Rolling Stone issue. referred to Matt Taibbi as a blogger. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's 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 this way of. It feels like she wrote this thirty years too late, and I, yeah, yeah. and I'm interested in this because she is a, one of I think the world's experts on criticism that that's what she writes about so i'm i'm wondering if if whether this is because she is so grounded in the last 300 years the the main like the major changes that have come over the last 5 10 or 20 years don't feel as natural or sort of the air we breathe to her as they do to me because mm-hmm. i would i would never care about what an Yale professor is writing about, but I right. would perhaps pick up an issue with a believer or read a Substack. Like so, it's yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So the idea that like, like literary criticism may have to be deprofessionalized before its practitioners will allow themselves to openly embrace aesthetic judgment or to speak in the voice of the lay reader once more, which again is happening all the time, every day. Right, exactly, and it's and and Substack is a fascinating example of real specialists and generalists and dilettantes, but specialists in certain areas who are real experts, not wanting to write for the New York Times because of the variety of demands, but being able to make, you know, between 30 and $600,000 a year writing about their specialty areas in sophisticated ways from tech to poetry to politics and and, and everything else. So the idea that- say, th- It turns out $30,000 a year is not the floor at Substack. That's not the minimum you can earn there. Just, no, yeah. but I am, I am, sorry. I'm saying it is possible to yeah, earn yeah, yeah, 30, yeah. just like yes, it is possible to earn 600. And yeah. most people earn nothing and do it as a hobby. But I think right. that that's great like i it seems totally reasonable t- to me and then some people are discovered off substack and brought into the new york times so they have a um a bio that allows them to get an agent and write a book and then some people are just happy to stay on substack and and write for their audience there and i and and all of this is happening and there is a dynamism there i remember having this type of conversation that she is writing about when i was 22 in college wondering whether I could be what my professors were because I thought my my professors were so extraordinary. But I can't remember the last time I had a sincere conversation about how extraordinary professors are since then. 
Um, so that's what sort of tickles me about this. It's yeah. it's a professor writing. Like I know everyone still thinks professors are the shit, but really it's getting a little bit like bigger picture than that. Sometimes, but in fact, yeah. no one I interact with thinks that professors <laughs> are the shit. Yeah, yeah. Only people being taught by professors and other people who want to be professors are thinking like that. And it's it's that I think is the cognitive dissonance that you experience reading this right. where I think the tone that you're not understanding is you're not on the inside of this. So you don't really right. understand where she's being critical and where she's being complimentary and what she's yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think to her and her colleagues, it's clear. Yeah. Well, I, I do. I would, it would be interested to hear if Cameron has any special insight into this. And I know she apparently at least sometimes listens to the show. So uh, I would love to get her on to tell us everything we got wrong or to tell us about whatever else. Good. Shall yeah. we talk about Purity, a story yes. by Thomas Legati? Yeah. So Thomas Legati, I first heard of because people claimed that he had been loosely plagiarized by Nick Pizzolatto. Do you remember when Nick Pizzolatto read at Hopkins or were you there for that? Read at Hopkins. So yeah. Nick Pizzolatto is yeah. uh, Pizzolatti, Pizzolatto. I think it's Pizzolatto. Pizzolatto. Nick Pizzolatto is the auteur behind HBO's three seasons of True Detective. Yes. And he is so well-respected for that, that when yeah. David Milch was trying to get the final movie together for Deadwood, yeah. um, and was suffering some, uh, at the same time, was in the beginning of having Alzheimer's, he brought in Nick Pizzolatto to help him write that movie. He is considered one of the sort of grand... Uh, yeah. television showrunners now is sophisticated ways. Yeah. And a few years, other movies and things. And yeah, yep. a few years before that, they brought him in to audition for a yeah. role as a professor of uh, fiction in our program at the Johns Hopkins writing seminars. And he was such a fucking prick. Like the worst. I mean, he hilariously. was, he was, <laughs> So it was bad. some sort of performance. I don't know what it was, but he was, so he came in and he um, ran the workshop for- Oh, you had a workshop? Oh, I just, I was he just ran, He ran the workshop for Alice McDermott. Now, some of you who will listen to this will know Alice McDermott's name. Some of you will have read her work and think it's boring. Some of you will have read her work and think it's uh, masterpieces and worthy of the- National Book Reviews, that the, uh, National Book Awards Irish that, that she's yeah. won. Um, I, she, regardless of any of that, she's a wonderful person and by far the best classroom teacher I've ever had. Um, I had her three out of four semesters at grad school, and she is just the most spectacular workshopper I've ever I've ever worked with by far. The, the number two is is many. So it seems she's like a really like gentle, kind human being and brilliant, and just yeah. brilliant and gentle and kind and caring and just I and she found a way for the workshop to function in that like it was helpful and not just people trying to impress her. And she had these like. 12 or 15 basic rules that she would always go back to not that you had to use the rules but at least that you would understand that this was the sort of a a way to think about fiction and it's helped me immensely and i actually wanted to bring that up in discussion of the word purity but mm. 
Nick Pizzolato comes in for our classmate and friend, uh, Andrew Palmer's story and just shits all over it. So the way that he begins this workshop, as opposed to Alice, who would just read a couple times um, and then open us up to conversation and lead us to where we would then learn more about literature and the writer would benefit. Nick Pizzolato just comes in with this diatribe about whoever wrote this thinks he's funny. Who wrote this? Don't you think you're a funny man? Well, you're not funny and the goal of literature shouldn't be funny but even if it is, you didn't achieve that funniness. Can anyone defend it? You know, and a couple of us are like, I don't know. I kind of thought it was funny, but like, didn't think that was the point for it to be funny. It was just a good short story with some, like, I don't know. I thought that maybe we could have heard a little bit more from the waitress's perspective, but like, what are you talking oh, about? Oh, and he goes, you people, you probably all read Philip Roth in here. Really? You shouldn't read Roth. You should read Bellow. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? Why are you yelling at us? And then he gave this this reading and this monotone about uh, people killing people on horses or something and didn't take questions and was just like an obnoxious piece of shit. And he leaves and we're all like, well, he certainly treated us with a whole lot of disrespect. And then two years later, he is like the celebrated genius of American letters. And I did like, he, I was very sheltered growing up and was not around drugs really at all until a little bit in college. But like, I, I had, I was, I never knew what people meant when they said like, oh, that guy's on Coke until that reading. And then I thought like, oh, that's what they must mean. Even if he was just pretending to be on Coke, it, that's totally. what it felt like. Yeah. He was just so, uh, it's a word I rarely use. He was just so disrespectful. It was like, why are you acting like this, sir? You know, like who's going to benefit from from this. And there was there was some of that attitude in our program to begin with. Like Dave Smith had a little bit of the the yeah, the, yeah, the master yeah. poet Dave Smith who, gave, yeah, who gave, ran the program. He was a bit of like a a football coach who thought that like we all deserve to be treated like shit cuz like that way he would turn us into real men, you know, like both the women and the men would be somehow turned into real men unless he dismissed the women out of hand and only wanted to teach the real men. But like there was a certain element of like Southern masculinity in our program, which I found incredibly off-putting. But yeah. he, this Pizzolatto guy, it was just like, he blew way by Dave Smith in, in <laughs> disrespect. It was just like, he's like arbitra- capriciously mean. Um, so anyway, he's who first turned you on to uh, Thomas Ligotti. Well, because the story was that his uh, the 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 beloved Russ Cole character played by Matthew McConaughey in that first season was spouting a bunch of antinatalist, deep black pessimism. And what I heard was that it was much of it was paraphrased from Thomas Ligotti. I think specifically he has a book called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. That's that's nonfiction. I think it was largely that. So I heard of him through that and then uh, heard some discussions of some other stories of his more recently and have been meaning to at least take a look at him. And then specifically Matt Wall wrote to say, I would love more than anything to hear you and Brian discuss the Thomas Ligotti story purity. So like, fantastic. Right, sure. Fantastic. Let's, I, I, let's give it a try. So, so that we, lunatics wish is our command. <laughs> that that exactly. sounds spectacular. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we read the story purity. We read the story purity. Would you like to attempt to uh, paraphrase the, the story purity? Or do you want to say what it's about is it about anything would you is there a plot would you like to, to there's a, tell the yeah, plot there, there is a there is a plot i feel like i feel like just the reading the first paragraph to start isn't a bad introduction because it is it's uh because as much as anything part of you, you don't you won't get a sense of the story unless you get a sense of the voice and like the things that that are very present and the things that are that are 
eerily absent in this story. So yeah, the, well, well this said. This is the opening paragraph. Purity. We were living in a rented house, neither the first nor the last of a long succession of such places that the family inhabited throughout my childhood years. It was shortly after we had moved into this particular house that my father preached to us his philosophy of rented living. He explained that it was not possible to live in any other way and that attempting to do so was the worst form of delusion. We must actively embrace the reality of non-ownership, he told my mother, my sister, and me, towering over us and gesturing with his heavy arms as we sat together on a rented sofa in our rented house. Nothing belongs to us. Everything is something that is rented out. Our very heads are filled with rented ideas passed on from one generation to the next. Wherever your thoughts finally settle is the same place that the thoughts of countless other persons have settled and have left their impression, just as the backsides of other persons have left their impressions on that sofa where you are now sitting. We live in a world where every surface, every opinion or passion, everything altogether is tainted by the bodies and minds of strangers. Cooties, intellectual cooties and physical cooties from other people are crawling all around us and all over us at all times. There is no escaping this fact. So this is the opening lecture from the dad. We are told uh, it's narrated by the, the, the son. This family has moved into a new house. We're told it's a it's a bad house in a bad neighborhood. It's the kind of place they always move. The pattern is that the they move to a place. The dad insists that they're, you know, it's 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 temporary, but also insists that like, oh, finally I'll be able to get some real work done here. The work seems to consist of hiding himself in the basement for long stretches of time, as is something like a some sort of mad scientist. The mom and the the, the daughter go off on trips. It's explicitly like it's the point of their trip seems to be that nobody knows what their trips are about. Except the, they're called sabbaticals. They're called yeah the uh, the um what are they called like un, uh, unspecified sabbaticals. The inciting incident of the story is a proselytizer comes to the door to ask for donations for his for his Citizens of Faith Foundation. This dialogue I thought was this is the thing about the story is like I'm I'm so confused by so much of it and I'm so ambivalent about so much of it. But I also just found like large passes passages of it very very funny. So there, there is some, yeah. I mean, we, we haven't discussed this beforehand. I don't know whether you hated it or love. There is some spectacular writing in this short oh, story. Man. Yeah. I uh, just, uh, on the paragraph level and on just narrative control, which I, I want to talk about moving forward because it, yeah. it doesn't follow any of the rules. Um, no. <laughs> but, w but when it follows rules, it does so in a, uh, in a breathtaking fashion. So keep on going. Yeah. So uh, the, the 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 proselytizer panhand not panhandler he's like a like a guy asking for donations to his church or whatever uh, he comes in the dad says I'll give you a donation but first come come with me down into my basement <laughs> he goes with the dad down into the basement the well the reason he house. goes down to the basement right. is because the father like in order to prove that the father's not a crazy sociopath right. he's like Daniel come on downstairs and just like demonstrates to yeah. the um, like, don't bother us now the gentlemen <laughs> of the citizens for faith that Daniel yeah. exists and the idea is right. that like well if this kid has a guy as a kid how bad could he be so right. the gentleman raising money for citizens of faith like dutifully follows the dad into the, the basement. basement yeah and the son Daniel leaves the house we are told he he um he goes to visit his friend I did love this moment um however that night I was eager to see a friend of mine who lived in the neighborhood to be precise my friend did not live in the bad neighborhood where my family had rented a house 
but in the worst neighborhood nearby. And then he describes this absolute nightmare of urban squalor. It looks like it sounds like the like the burnt out fringes of Detroit or something. Not only is there the twisted paradise of danger, where just like everything has been burned down and like there's no there's like only shadows and there are no curtains, they're just like bed sheets and it's all set. But when he finally sees the person in the house, the television faced a sofa seemed to be occupied from end to end by a black woman of indefinite age. And this sentence, I mean, is the worst sentence ever. Written. It's like the most in her left hand was a jar of mayonnaise and in her right hand was an uncooked hot dog. The last one from an empty package lying on the bare floor of the house. She submerged the hot dog into the mayonnaise, then pulled it out and finished it off without taking her eyes from the television. After licking away some mayonnaise from her fingers, she screwed the lid back on the jar and set it to one side on the sofa, which appeared to be the only piece of furniture in the room. I mean, it's the most disgusting thing I've ever read. And it's it's written with such like clarity and a lack of editorializing that just like yeah. licking the final mayonnaise off the uncooked hot dog is... It's it's uh it's very funny. And and there's and this is like there there are these sort of funny turns where you know we have this this where and she he he meets her because he sees like the most haunted house in the neighborhood, like the most terrifying ruin of a house in the neighborhood. And it's through that house that like a little glow through the window informs him that someone is somehow living there. And then this voice calls out to him, hey boy, hey, you come here. And he go, and that's that's the person he meets. And then he does go by, he buys her some salami sticks, comes back, and his response is, I wanted to ask the woman if I might be allowed to curl up in some corner of that house and never again leave it. And it reminded me, like, I wanted to get, I guess, like the suggestion is like, life with dad is so horrible. But also it reminded me of that weird convention that I don't know if you know uh, the the much loved and much hated uh, Confederacy of Dunces, but like there's a trick that John Kennedy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uses. A, I'm on the much hated side. Of yeah. that. I just didn't find it funny. I I was ex I was told it was going to like make me laugh uproariously. And then 30 pages in, I, I just didn't understand what it was I was reading. But carry on. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think it really held together as a novel, but I did find parts of it very funny. There's a thing he does, though, where he'll have like a very normal, mundane conversation that'll that'll be just like ordinary people saying boring things to each other in a like a polite context. The only difference will be that he'll he'll substitute in all the dialogue tags the word screamed for the word right. said. Right. And that's right. How, like how a lot of this felt. It's like you, you hear this description of something that should send this kid like screaming up the road and instead like he's he's irresistibly attracted to it well interestingly you said the inciting incident is when the guy comes to the house asking for money for citizens of faith i would argue that there are two completely separate parallel inciting incidents and almost two completely separate parallel stories and, and so, I, I had a hard time with the chronology the first time i read it right of, exactly because of some of that weird yeah so there it what's strange about this is coincidental to the moment of this citizens for faith guy coming to try to raise money yeah uh the daniel and the daughter are doing something yeah daniel runs off to his friend who's this woman who licks mayonnaise off hot dogs yeah. to show her yeah they become best friends and she's like the right. most like wholesome moral person in the whole story <laughs> Even though when they talk to each other, they often don't understand each other, both because of issues right. of life experience and simple vocabulary. Like, right. yeah. like when he says something is European, she doesn't understand that or might have never heard the term before. So it's yeah, yeah. 
but she's also the only person in the story who behaves either honestly or selflessly with like toward him or kindly yeah right like she like she does a couple things that are sort of like indisputably caring even just like she says she'll pay him and then she does pay him and he's kind of bewildered by that and then she does like she does sort of make a significant choice toward trying to protect him at one point but um, but she lives on the wrong side of the law, we find out, because yeah, she seems when... seems to be a drug, drug dealer, I guess. It seems like it, yeah. When of some downer of some kind, right? Because people are like... Yeah, assuming heroin, the... they're like... That's my yeah, assumption as yeah, well, right? Faded out in the um, corner, yeah. So the bathroom's not a bathroom. It's a hole in the floor. Um, it's it's really sort of as disgusting a, a, a place, a, a scene as somebody can, could paint. Um, and then we should just ruin it. We should just say what happens. Right, because I would say that his going over there was actually not a coincidence because his assumption is he does that all the time. The coincidence was whatever happens with the mom and the daughter that then that then leads to this this other encounter. Yes, I am saying there, that... He spends a lot of nights there, but like when he's over there, I'm, someone I'm else... I'm saying that this big event that happens where yeah. a guy comes looking for him, essentially, right. th- this event, it happens the same day, the same yes. time as the guy who comes to their home asking for money. Definitely. And that is a coincidence. Yes, except that I, I think that the the his coming to look for him on that night is not the coincidence. It's the mom and the daughter sending him there. Which because right. off stage the implication is that they they chose that night to send him there. And so that is a coincidence with the dad getting the guy at the door. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, just yeah, two yeah, things yeah. happen to happen yes, on the exactly. same night. And they yeah. just they have no connection to each other. Yeah. Except they have an overwhelming number of thematic and action connections. Right. So the way a, 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 a plot typically works yeah. is there's a human being in a situation. That human being wants something. We as a reader watch as that human being tries to overcome an obstacle on the way to achieving or getting right. that thing. Yeah, yeah. That kind of occurs in, in this story because the father wants to find a way to cure human beings of how would you say it of of impurities i mean he, yeah he calls them impurities but they're like anything that's not this sort of absolute brute materialism so that's what the father wants the kid yeah. wants uh human connection perhaps is that yeah. fair and he's, and he's sort of like a spooky winona writer and beetlejuice kid but he but even that seems to have a like like a longing for for company of some kind even if it's a ghost and what happens is a police officer type we think it's a police officer a real police officer because yes. he interacts with um his friend this woman whose name is candy saying the only reason why you're allowed to do this is because i let you so presumably he's actually a police officer right yeah yeah, yeah. um we're told also that many kids are murdered in this mm-hmm town he shows up to candy's house he says where's the white boy candy says there is no white boy daniel the white boy pops out uh the police officer says come with me i'll take you home daniel knows that he won't end up getting home and so he uses this magical weapon that his father constructed for him to protect him against evildoers presumably right and Daniel then stabs the police officer with this magic weapon who yeah. kills the police officer immediately. Right. And after that, a series of odd events occur. So the guy is dead or close to dead. They strip him of his clothes and money, including his boxers. 
Daniel is shaken by what he sees underneath the underwear of this dead guy. All of them are. Like they start to pull. They're up all shaken they by. They stop it. when right. they see, the, you know, what's under the boxers. And then they dump the dead guy into the basement the, of this house, hole, which yeah. is used as a shithole. Daniel then gets home, and there is another dead man who has been robbed of his money in a basement right. at his home. So yeah, yeah. although the plot doesn't work as A leads to B leads to C, we have this sort of aggressive parallel between yes. basements with robbed dead men in them. Right. And then we find out, you read it as I read it. I'm not sure whether it's necessarily confirmed, but I read it as because when Daniel gets back home, the mother and sister are coincidentally, maybe coincidentally, but but back home after their trip that night as well. Daniel's sister says, um, do you know what a hermaphrodite is? Right. Which is, again, either the biggest coincidence in the world or a sign that she and the mom sent this police officer hermaphrodite over to murder Daniel. Which I, and I think there's a little more evidence for it than just that line that she because she says later, um, how's this thing between you and mom going to end? Every time I mention your name, she just clams up. And then there were a couple lines I realized I had misread the first time. He says um, he first learned about the child murderer. It was, in fact, my mother who, with outrageous insincerity, warned me about some dangerous pervert stealthily engaged in cutting kids throats right and left in what she called that terrible neighborhood where your friend lives. So like she tells him with it with outrageous insincerity, which is which is a little bit alarming. And then I also noticed that just at the very beginning, he's when he says like he's he wasn't sad when his when his uh, his sister and his mom were out of the house. I had read that he least of all did I miss my mother's European cigarettes fouling the atmosphere around the house. He doesn't like her cigarettes that she smokes. But the sentence is actually least of all did I miss my mother and her European cigarettes fouling the atmosphere around the house. Right. Yeah, that's um, funny. So there I is, misread there's that some also. like weird. So they dislike there. each other, and then, yeah. and then the and then there's the last line, right? Where we are told early on that the father thinks both um, state statehood and God are two of the three big lies in in humanity. Yeah, as the principle faith being demonstrable, you know, demonstrating both of them. Yeah, right. But and then a third. Daniel keeps on wanting to know what the third is. The father's too tired from murdering and stealing the the brain bad thoughts in a gooey yeah. material yeah, the brains matter seems to be leaking out of the guy's head at the end from uh from the guy he's too tired to answer the question so the mother says the third principle she said blowing a cloud of cigarette smoke in my direction again recalling the line that you just read why she said it's families sweetheart meaning the third terrible thing that needs to be destroyed is but, and it is an illusion it isn't real is an illusion right we, is yeah. is family it's harmful um, to believe in yeah so the question I think here is, did you enjoy it? If so, why? And if not, why not? Um, and where do you where do you come down? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Coming, like I just found the writing very clear and funny and, and idiosyncratic. It was just like a very distinctive voice that I was had not quite heard before. And it was so gloomy and bleak in like continually surprising ways. But that seemed to have a, I mean, maybe it's because it's narrated by a child, but there was a funny kind of lightness to the tone throughout that 
you know, we would occasionally say like, this had been extremely disturbing for me. And so I decided to take my mind off it by going down in the basement of horrors where my dad had murdered. Right. So my, like, my example yeah. of that is there's a parenthetical on page five after the doorbell rings and the narrator tells us, for some reason, I had always believed that my father disconnected all the doorbells as soon as we as we relocated right. to a newly rented house. That for some reason does so much work because it's like, it's like, as a kid, you don't really know what's going on. And we know that he's yeah. older now. And he's like, it's not, it doesn't have that um, aggressive sincerity. That's what I didn't like about the orange spelled backwards story. You know, <laughs> no, that, yeah, yeah. that, that for some reason is like, it's just tr a guy trying to tell a story, which he knows he right. doesn't fully understand. And, and there's a, a straightforwardness to it, a conversational honesty that, that I found. Um, yeah. Yeah. After the horrifying, Touching. like salami and, and mayonnaise scene, he says, that was how I came to know my friend Candy. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like he, exactly. he's sort of oddly likable throughout. And I did like a, a small clarification is I think that it is significant that like not only does Candy try to protect him by saying no white people here, but also he doesn't, he does say if there was anything I had never known in my life as a cold abstract certainty, it was this. If I went with this man, I would not be going home. But it's not actually in response to that that he decides to kill him. He he decides to expose himself. Like he he is hidden away. And she says there's no white people here. And then he comes out. He emerges with the pen taken out of his pocket. He, so he's decided to do it before he... Like he decides to go out there and let the guy see him and kill him in one go. So it is this sort of... And then he does it. Like he does the whole thing very effortlessly. So I, I think like what did frustrate me a little bit as I went through was the way in which, I mean, he does like continually not tell you the exact most important piece of information as he's going through in a way that like kids sort of often do. But I, I did, as I tried to sort of like do, I guess, like grown up reading work of piecing together causality and story and meaning, I got frustrated because a lot of that didn't seem finally to add up. And then I, in a way, I, at the end, there's maybe because the, 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 boy and the girl his sister they have like a more straightforward conversation than anyone else seems to have had in the whole story and then down to like it was nicely set up with the third third conception and the mom but it did feel to me as if it were it were almost like it became a slightly more conventional like spooky tale in some ways at the end like it i, I couldn't i mean partly like i just never knew quite what kind of story i was reading i tended to enjoy whichever version i was reading in that moment but i was a little bit bewildered page to page both times reading it again I think the writing is so good and it's so surprising that I I was I'm glad to read it I'm, I want to read more of him but I'm actually glad to hear your your citing the two the two men dead in the basement in the par in the way that's parallel but not causal because what it really reminds me of is do you know the um the old Bettelheim book the uses of enchantment no where he talks about Basically, he's a he was a student of Freud, and he apparently was also like a a liar and a, <laughs> a patient abuser and many other things. But but he wrote this uh, fascinating book in which he basically psychoanalyzes fairy tales and explains like how they work. And oh, sure, I have true, I have read yeah, excerpts. It was like I have read what inspired of that book. Um, yeah, yes. Sondheim's Into the Woods. Right, uh, exactly. And right. he and he basically says like in stories like Jack and the Beanstalk, the reason there's no father is that the giant is the father. Right. And like every location is actually the same location and every adult is the same. And so, you know, in that way, there is a kind of a dream logic where like the moment he leaves the house, what he's really doing is like 
like Candy is kind of his imagined dream mother. And then the evil police officer is like his slightly more clear sighted vision of his father as a mother. Exactly. So he can be emotionally connected to the mother and murder yeah. the father and just yeah. go Oedipus all, all the way home. You, it, What you're saying reminds me of a, you haven't read Duplex by Catherine Davis, have you? No. It's this very surreal novel, which has is full of pleasure and joy um, in the same way purity is, and also as empty of plot. Have you read stories by Barthelmay? I I find it similarly. I've only I've read like one or two, but I don't. Okay, so my my issue, even early George George Saunders, I, I would say, fits into this category of like, I read the story purity or duplex the the novel or pretty much everything i think i've read by bartholomew and i i remember and i think like i like this this is um written by somebody in control of what he or she is doing somebody smart there are real pleasures of recognition about the human condition and it seems to end in some ways that echoes other things yeah, yeah. But would it be better if they also did the thing where stuff made sense and there was a plot and resolution? <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think most defenders of Duplex and and Bartholomew and Purity would say no. That you necessarily yeah. have to exchange logic for surreality or dream logic or you know emotion or feeling or or, or gut response. And I, I, I always really struggle with that because like I. I liked reading Purity, but it was a chore to read it again. And I was bored at times. And I dislike most of Bartholomew because in spite of its delights, I find it boring and, and a chore to read and read. And similarly with Duplex, which I was recommended by a dozen different people and finally read it. It was page by page fascinating, but as a book, it was I, I found it a work and and a chore. And I just I I wonder whether these writers are correct or implicitly correct in that you can't have it both ways. Yeah. I, I think the best writers, you you do have it both ways. Yeah, you yeah. know, I think James Baldwin and Tony Morrison and Philip Roth and Dave Eggers at moments like have it both ways. And that really is exciting when you have these images of plot and uh, images and plot meet in some way and yeah. and have the propulsive architecture of a plot lead you through a, a neighborhood of psychological re- resonant images. And, and I'm always sort of disappointed when I finish a story like Purity or a novel like Duplex or anything written by Bartholomew and think like, okay, like there's a lot here and yeah. it, it's it's skillful, but like, why didn't, why didn't he or she try? And I, I, I want to know to you, like, am I a prisoner yeah. in my own, sense of what a story needs to be or am i just like a normal person who likes to hear a story where i want to know what happens next and these people are pretending human beings don't have those animal instincts and i yeah i i don't i I don't know in a way like i do i don't i don't necessarily want every story to follow the rules of storyhood but i do want it to follow its own rules like i want it to I want it to be a kind of story and I might, I don't need to know what kind of that is right away, but eventually I need to know what I'm reading and I need it to be what it tells me I'm reading. And I think my, my instinct with this, and it's similar to actually, it, it does make a little bit of sense that Matt recommended this because I read a few of his short stories before this and they are, I think all the ones he sent me were like really graphic horror stories. 
and they were at their best they were like really surprising because they just tended to do like totally insane things that were not that did violate like the rules of storytelling i think it's seldom did they all come together and land in a really satisfying way throughout but but in a way like i was glad for him to be doing that and i'm glad for legati to be doing this but i tend to think that like this suggests to me that he's insanely talented and very driven and has this sort of vision and probably like I don't know that this would be a better story if he tried to revise it. I think it might just be that he needs to Amit Majmadar it and like write 10 and one of those is going to be genius. And then he and just it needs- should be in rhyming couplets. <laughs> right. The story. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, uh, with a preface uh, in the LARB. No, like I think, I think like to me, this reads like a kind of a, a nearish miss. Like, I don't know that he could revise it and make it better. I think he might just need to like, get a running start and like try again at another thing. And maybe that one will land just so. And that right. may be I mean, part th- of how, this like, is where really I call you patronizing writer. and you, right. This is where I call yeah. you patronizing and you get offended. I, Please. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think that he would be angry if you said that and say, no, this isn't a near miss. This is a distillation of my vision of the world. Like maybe. I, like maybe. you're the asshole, but yeah. I'm the asshole too. So my, yeah. my question here is you, you slightly avoided my question sure. where I said, could he have all these elements and a plot that made me less bored? And you said what I think is a totally reasonable tangential point, which is that a story will teach you how to read it. And and my response to that is like, okay, at the end of two pages, I know how to read this story. But then it stops being the thing it told you how to read. Well, I don't, I don't know if, if there's no, such thing as anybody belonging to anything and the father's doing secret experiments and the rest of us were banned and my mother ran away for reasons I didn't understand. And then we continue not understanding stuff like that. That seems to follow those rules. My question is regardless of how we are taught to read a story, do you want to read a story where you're taught to read it in this other way? And it satisfies that even perfectly, it perfectly satisfies it if it doesn't have the elements of storytelling that I enjoy. I mean, I, I tend to like stories that have that, that like develop and take advantage of convention. Like I I don't, I don't like boringly predictable stories, but I do like stories that use causality that use plot and recognition and reversal and these things that we're, you know, we know, are, are old conventional ideas, but are conventions for a reason. I That tends to be what I find most satisfying. However, I, I would like, I love discovering new things that can work. And I think there may be a kind of writer. And I was saying like Edward Albee was very much this way. He was a huge asshole. Um, he also refused to revise, but he was a, he was like, he would write one masterpiece and then nine pieces of shit. And, and he, he just he wrote never... Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? He wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He wrote Zoo Story, was his first uh, big, big first play, and it was and it is great. And it's I actually sent it to Max. I thought like you may be a similar kind of writer. Like it's Zoo Story shouldn't work. It's a terrible concept for a play, but it's totally captivating and bizarre and like wrenching. And then he writes uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He writes uh, most people consider Three Tall Women to be one of his other good ones. I think it's pretty good. Little Alice is controversial, but I think it's it's worth it. And then I think the other like great, great play he wrote was A Delicate Balance, which is like the, I realize it's the opposite of Banshees of Inisherin. Like Banshees of Inisherin is a play, is a story about, and it's written by another playwright, Matt Martin McDonough. 
but it's about like two old friends. And then one of them says, I don't want to be friends anymore. I like that. Play. I, I like that movie. I've had very mixed feelings about it, but I found it fascinating to, to watch. What um, did you dislike about it? Uh, I, and this, this spoiler alert, we're going to spoil Banshee's yeah, version, yeah, yeah. which you really should listen to. So can you, in the, in the show notes, if you include this part, tell them at what time they can come back and no, I have, have it not. That. All right. People, so people always say like, Oh, do, do, uh, elaborate, uh, notes where you tell me at what time you talk about everything. And I think, you oh, know, go fuck yourself. I don't want to do okay, that. That's fair. Work. All right. I can go fuck myself. Um, Sorry to have suggested yeah, yeah. that generosity to your listener. What did you dislike about Banshee's? Uh, I, it, it seemed to me at times to take a kind of a stubborn, like a narrative stubbornness and cruelty as like hard thinkingness in a way. Like it, it felt a little bit like I'm going to be so awful here that like the only reason you can't handle it is because you're not really, you're, you're kidding yourself. And I thought like, well, I don't know. Like, there are plenty of stories that have, I mean, like Dogtooth is fucking hard to watch, but it does seem to, like, I, I, I can care about and follow the character throughout in a way that doesn't feel just like cruel and arbitrary. And a lot of Banshees felt cruel and arbitrary to me. And like, I would say great cruel, actors, I would like, say amazing cruel, cast, amazing, yes. everything about it was so good, but. I would say cruel, yes, but arbitrary, no. I mean, the, the donkey choking on the finger was arbitrary and that didn't. No, but that happen. was one of the most like human little turns of like it, that. It, exactly. Was one of the best that, parts of the movie. I agree. Know? So that's where, I mean, cruel insofar as everybody suffers, but arbitrary, it did feel like what he set out from the beginning went to its natural, if not extreme conclusion. And I, I got a kick out of that where I, 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 it's, it's rare to me that unless you're watching some John Wick silliness where just like everyone dies except for him at the end of every movie, like having the extremity of the conclusion borne out from the premise, I found thrilling in, in the Banshees movie. Yeah. It, I don't know. It felt to me like Oedipus where, uh, it turns out he's not Leocasta and uh, Laius's son, but she still kills herself and he still tears out his eyes. It just feels like, like it just ends in horror, but with nothing is revealed and there's no resolution. Like it, there's no. Yeah. That's interesting. You know? I, I part of the way that I like, the, like the, the poor, the poor dumb guy dies. Yeah. And like what? Yeah. I, don't know. I didn't understand why he died. I, my, my take on that is I think the, playwright here the, the the screenwriter was trying to give the impression that he was giving a fully honest not patronizing not blinkered view of these people in their full humanity but was really sort of doing the opposite where they were like wind-up dolls and they just did exactly mm -hmm. what like an idiot would do and what like an artistic lunatic would would do and i i didn't i don't i don't feel it was as generous a film as people are talking about it as being i thought it was sort of a very ungenerous movie no, but i totally ungenerous but yeah. i got a kick out of it i i found it i was uh i thought the combination of its i think inarguable physical beauty with its extremity in moments where i didn't uh, expect it to go extreme was yeah. exciting to me do you remember uh the Columbia in a way movie? in a way i'm sorry yeah. in the same way that um 
a distant episode by Paul Bowles was where oh, it yeah. kept on De- getting more and more. I have the same feeling about both of those. As exactly. No. And yeah, that, that's yeah. why I bring it up. Cause like it, it has the same, like we're going to, we're going to God is clockmaker. Like we're going to start these, this character and then we're going to watch it go. And instead of ending it when we would normally end it, we're just going to let it go and go and go. And it keeps on yeah. getting more and more brutal. And I think I like the story for the same reason. I like the movie. Yeah, I it reminded me a little bit of um you remember the 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 weird little intro moment like the prologue to uh serious man with the so weird with the, the Jew like, with the, the, the Yiddish and the Jewish and the yeah the shtetl never comes back and the die book come, comes the, comes and is kills the rabbi yeah. I was like oh maybe he was actually just the rabbi or yeah 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 uh, and I felt like as a very brief preface to a movie that also involved like a sense of like an uncaring fate or whatever god but like a totally human and you know uh like tangible present main character and michael stuhlbarg whatever his name is like there was enough that i could connect with and feel like a human being in proximity to that as a little like absurdist preface to that i thought it it had some value but this felt like that was the whole movie i just felt like jesus fucking christ like I, i don't but it felt like like Beckett when he's not humane, you know, like Beckett when he's just being spiteful and not also being like human and funny and, you know, breaking our hearts a little bit. Yeah, that's that's fair. I it have would be like like same. like waiting for Godot, but if uh, Vladimir and Estragon if just Godot like never shows up, it would be like waiting for Godot, but if Godot didn't come, <laughs> no, at the end. Like, like if if like they just like like stab each other and then Godot also doesn't show up, but then they. Like it just does. I don't know. It like I, I left. I feel like he's a musician, but he cuts his fingers. Like it just. I don't know. I, I, I agree. Like I have less. I have less and less appetite for certain kinds of violence. I think as I get older, I don't know. Oh, like absolutely. I, you know, I uh, physical, emotional, sexual. I used to be able yeah, to to yeah. deal with it all as a nineteen year old going to the movies by myself. Now I can't. I I can't stomach it in a way I used to. Yeah, be able to. yeah. So no, I. I mean, I. I. I don't know. It was a. Uh, yeah. Coming back to the the story, though, I oh, and the goat. I would say the goat is also oh. So the reason, sorry, the reason I mentioned that is that that a delicate balance is also a great. I think it's great, but it's partly because it, it 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 feels less alienating because instead of being like two old friends and one of them decides he doesn't like the other one, uh, they're like old old rich waspy guys, and the one of them it's an old couple, and uh, um, the his best friend and that guy's wife come over to his house and they're both like 70 year old, you know, super wealthy guys. And he comes over to the house and he says, Oh, I didn't know you were coming by, you know, come on in, have a drink. And then he says, so what, what, what brings you here? He says, Oh no, we've come to stay. Says, what do you mean? And like, he's like, we're going to come yeah, live with that's you now. Funny. That's and then, funny. yeah. And then like the end is he's like, please stay, please. And they're like, no, we're going to go now. But it's, you know, so it's like, it, it's a weird, but like beautiful, sad play. Uh, and then the other one I think is, is, almost great but it was was like he was just too much of an asshole to revise any of it was the goat which is like a great play with terrible lines that he then was to, you know but that, yeah, to me, like, I, that's how this reads i like, saw that on broadway and didn't understand it i i didn't maybe i was too young or in the wrong mindset or something i kept on waiting to understand it and i never understood it i saw it i saw it in on the west end with jonathan price who was amazing um except that he said urinal which took me out of it a little bit um and then uh what's the guy's name eddie redmayne played the oh, shitty the shitty, horrible, in, like insanely annoying son, 
and truly it's poison to me against him and i hate him and everything i see him in <laughs> like i can't stand him because i always like it just you know, he always is that character to me but uh, getting back to where we came from, which is Albie, yeah. and he breaks rules as well. I mean, the the only one of his plays I would be able to talk at any length about is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where mm-hmm. I don't think he does. I, I think we have a pretty standard, it's what do these two people want and how do they achieve it? The yeah. Right. So so then that's the only one I, I know enough to, yeah, to yeah. talk about. But like conventions, as you said, are conventions for a reason. And I... I want to be open to like something new could happen. And I think it, maybe it will happen with somebody who's sort of willful and like a one shot weirdo virtuoso. It's just that most of the output of those people is going to be not quite good enough. And if they just, and that's that's the way you feel about the story purity. I think it's like, Oh man, like such, such a talented, fascinating writer wrote this and has so much good stuff in it and it doesn't quite land, but like, I totally want to read some of his other stuff that maybe lands a little better. But isn't but but my question to you is don't you think he thinks it lands? Sure, yeah. And what makes you think other of his stuff will land better? I think his definition of landing is just different from mine. Well, it might it be. seems like it yours be. as well. I, I well part of what makes me think it is I have heard a couple of his other stories summarized and they sound much more whole. And so I want to then like check that out and and see if they, you know, how they come together. It could be that he just has a totally different idea, but it I mean it reminds me of uh like in a, to- a radically different writer, radically different form and everything. I read, in, I got a, an issue of the Able Muse recently uh, that I, which I didn't think I subscribed to, but um, <laughs> it had uh, had a lovely uh, uh, conversation in it between Stephen Campa and Mary Jo Salter and it had some new poems from her. And like one of them I think is like, ooh, just like really just right. Just this perfect little, little, you know, dart. And then, uh, and then there's some others that are like, there's, there's things she does very well. And there, there's somewhat like exercises in some ways, but like she does, you know, it's like, it's, it, it, they're done well. And there's another one that I think is like, it's not quite, it's not quite a great poem, but like it has a, it has a shapeliness and emotion. And you can see that it's aiming for a kind of unity that I think like, oh, I really like that when it works really well. And I don't think this is the best example of it, but I'm, like it's, I always like getting to see that. And then it also indicates to me like another time she might've written another, like she might come at that same concept again and it might just land. I understand what you're saying. The only question I continue to have is I don't think I've ever read a story with this goal that I found fully landed or a novel or anything like what what it so what it also what he is compared to and he's compared to, I think on the cover of this book is is he's compared to H.P. Lovecraft and and th- it's very different than Lovecraft in some ways it is similar in its deep pessimism and at least in this case like the like vague whiff of racism at times um, right. but uh, I mean in H.P. Lovecraft it's often more than a whiff but it, it, there's also like he has stories where the 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 sense of like they both have like elements of like pulp jump out surprises and like w- weird. Like I think he gets he gets compared to Lovecraft and Poe, and Poe was much more of a believer in like strict discipline and structure and did that really beautiful. I mean, he invented the detective story and he, like he's a master at that kind of stuff. Um, Lovecraft takes some of that stuff, but he also just gets really fucking weird at times, and sometimes right. it doesn't work, and sometimes I think it can be really powerful, and it's powerful in a way that is. Part of what makes it so unnerving is that it's like, well, a story isn't supposed to do this. Right. But but I, I feel I, I read a book, uh, The Shadow Over Something. In, Shadow in Over Smith. Innsmouth? Yeah. I, I read, short story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I read that short story and yeah. 
liked it and felt like there was more of a of an arc that i could follow and then i read a bunch of other stuff that seemed like it was aiming for something similar but but the the arc was displaced by imagery and and Mm -hmm. shocking moments and and stuff i don't yeah not all of them land but i think some of them land and some are more conventional than others right i'm just wondering whether and i'll I'll read the rest of this book by the way teatro grotesco is a terrible name for a collection no is that do you not oh no i I, but i read that as a um as making fun of itself i think no i mean i think he seems like part of his shtick is fuck you reader and like that's part like you know okay all right which i don't which i like it more i tend not to love but i think like to me that reads as like a like his agent was like, please don't call it Dandre right. Grotesco. Okay. And he was okay. like, no, I'm okay. definitely calling it Dandre Grotesco. All right. No, no, I, I like that. With the benefit of the doubt, I'll, I'll give it to him. I mean, I'm definitely going to read the rest of this book. My fear is that he's more he's more of a Bartholomew than a Lovecraft, where I, I am in the minority among people who have, people love Bartholomew. They, they think yeah, that yeah. a lot of people, they changed his, I'm, I'm actually probably in the majority, but of people who like Bartholomew, they adore Bartholomew. And I don't understand and the, the New Yorker published, you know, like 85 Bartholomew stories or something like it's, there's something about his lack of causality and dreamscapes and however you want to call it, that rings true to people. I think he has some funny lines and otherwise it's super boring. And I fear that that's where Ligotti's going to go, but I'll circle back because I'm going to finish, I'm going to read this collection and, and see if I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe the other thing that makes me hopeful is that I have not read his nonfiction or his essays, but what I have heard paraphrased either through true detective or elsewhere suggests to me that he is, He's a furious pessimist, but it's motivated. Like his hatred of the human condition is motivated by a love of humanity. It feels like there's a compassion underneath all that gloom. That... Like the father in the story? Oh, I don't think he's like the father in the story, but I, th- I think, I mean, because I don't think the father's motivated by love, right? I think. But the father does say that in order for society to be its full, in order for humanity to reach its full potential, we need to get rid of these I don't, I, artificialities. I don't, that's not, I mean, I don't know. And again, I can't. But like the, the impression I've gotten is that he's more despairing than that. Not that like, okay. here's what we need to do to get right with the okay. mean universe. It's more like the universe hates us. We can't fight it. We can't get better at this. But like, it is a, it is a tragedy that this is how we live. Like it, he seems to be motivated by compassion, even if he has no plan or hope. Interesting. So I, it makes me at least hopeful for some of his, for the, yeah, for the, I mean, for the reading experience. If nothing I'm else. excited to read on. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Matt, for making this fucking weird suggestion. I'm, we're always, always grateful for a fucking weird suggestion. The weirder, the better. That was this week's show. You can find Brian, as always, on Twitter, at B Platzer, where he is, uh, I think he's still a blue check, though, though I don't know if... Uh, I don't know what the what the how uh, I don't know I don't know what the, the the current rate of inflation is on blue checks there, uh, and uh, you can reach me at uh, sleevericketts at gmail.com. I almost forgot my own fucking email address. Sleevericketts at gmail.com. Please do let us know what you think and what you disagree with, as per usual. Uh, and uh, and if you are Merv Emery, then then please do do chime in and tell us what we were missing in that article or if you're thomas Lagatti and you wanted to tell us to <laughs> to 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 look harder or give up quicker 
uh, I would also appreciate that. Um, uh, if, if any of you like Matt, have a request for a, a particular episode, something in particular you'd like to hear us dig into, uh, that's also always welcome. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Thank <laughs> you.